everybody. Great, great to be together. Uh, today, we are wrapping up uh, Romans part one. We're going to finish up the book of Romans when our groups regather uh, after the first of the year. But here at sort of the midpoint uh, in the book of Romans, we want to explore a question that in one way kind of steps aside from the direct text of Romans, but in another way, it has everything to do with the text of Romans. And the question is this, as you're hearing the, the text of Romans preached, perhaps as you're reading it yourself, as you're discussing it uh, together with others, there may, there may come a question that sort of rattles around a little bit at times in the mind and heart, which is, you know, this is great news. Jesus died for my sins, and, and, and I can be forgiven and made whole and clean. This is great news, but how do I know that it's true? Is the New Testament witness to these things trustworthy? And you may, have, you, you may have had that question sort of occur to you in your mind and heart, but maybe we're a little afraid to ask it sometimes. Or maybe someone else asked it of you, kind of maybe challenging you a little bit about why you believe uh, the Bible to be true. And if that's the case, a question like that, whether it really originates inside of our mind or from outside of us, it rattles us. A little bit. It catches, us, it catches us off guard a little bit. Because for most of us, and I know this is true for me, I didn't come to accept the Bible as God's word because of an intellectual argument about its credibility. And you probably didn't either. We came to accept the Bible as God's word because God spoke to us through the words on the page, right? The Holy Spirit was bearing witness to us of the truth of what we were reading, and it continues to, to change us. That's why we believe it, it, that it's God's word. And yet this question about the Bible's reliability, it, it sort of runs around in our culture a little bit. If you watch too much cable TV or too many internet threads that you're reading, it's almost like the enemy can begin to sow doubt into your mind. And if you think about it, it's actually the oldest temptation of mankind, right? Because the serpent in the garden said, did God really say, right? The serpent was casting doubt on what God said in God's word. And so it's really the oldest temptation. And if we don't occasionally stand up and, and develop convictions about it, it can have a subtle, corrosive influence on us. Okay? And because this question is present in culture, uh, honest questions always deserve honest answers. And so it's worth a little bit of our time uh, to explore. And I, I want to explore it by asking three questions. Okay? The the, the, these are questions that I have had come up in my conversations with people. Okay? One question is, uh, are the copies of the New Testament gospels and letters, are they reliable? You know, are they full of errors and discrepancies? And we have no way of knowing what the original said. That's sort of the question, okay? Another question that I have heard come up is who decided what was included and what was not included in the, in the 27 letters of the New Testament that 
we have. You know, was it a couple guys smoking cigars in a back room somewhere that figured all this out? No, the answer to that is no, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay, well, that's sort of the question, you know, that people have about that. And, and then the last question is, how should I view the Bible? More specifically, how does the Bible call me to view it? What does it call me to believe about it? How should I view the Bible? All right, and so we'll get to that question last. So first, let's, let's think about this first one. Are the copies that we have reliable? Okay, and, and the question sort of goes like this. We don't have the original manuscripts of the New Testament. So how can we know with any degree of certainty what they said? Huh? Okay. And it's true. We don't have the original copies of the New Testament. But it turns out that you can have great assurance in the textual integrity of the New Testament. No ancient document is as well attested as the New Testament. So how so? Well, there is, for the nerds among us, and I'm one of them, all right, there is a whole science called textual criticism. And it kind of goes like this. If you have copies of an original document that no longer exists, and there are slight differences among all of those copies, there is a science to reconstructing the original. And of course, the more copies you have, and the closer in time that they are to the original writing, the greater certainty you can have about it. So what do we know about the New Testament documents? Well, we have over 24,000 New Testament manuscripts available for scholars to study. And the earliest complete copy, complete copy of the New Testament dates to about AD 350. Now the last letter of the New Testament was completed around A.D. 100. So that's about 250 years time period, okay? Uh, we, the, the ones from A.D. 50, uh, 351 is called the Codex Sinaiticus. And the reason it has that fancy name is because it was found in a monastery uh, around the region of Mount Sinai. And it is currently housed at the British Library. Okay. The other one from around A.D. 350 is called the Codex Vaticanus because it is housed at the Vatican Library. And, we, and those are complete copies of the New Testament. We have fragments of the New Testament from as early as A.D. 125, just a few years after the last document was written. The oldest is called uh, the Rylands Papyrus, and it's also housed in, in the uh, British Library. So how does this compare to other ancient documents? Well, maybe you had to read Plato in high school. I don't mean children's Plato, I mean the Greek guy, Plato, okay? Maybe you had to read him. Uh, we have not 24,000, uh, we have seven manuscript copies of Plato. And the earliest copy isn't 250 years from the writing, it's 1,200 years removed from the original writing. Do you remember anyone, your teacher in your high school class saying, well, we don't, <clears throat> we don't really know what Plato wrote. You know, it's, it's too, no, it's full, it must be full of errors. No, no one ever said that. And the New Testament is infinitely more well-attested 
than any of those things. And here's here's what's also true. Where the science of textual criticism may not have 100% certainty about one of the variants, none of those variants affect any doctrine of the New Testament, okay? They're like little variants, like two words being switched over or grammar or a misspelling in some way. Those are the kinds of variants that we're talking about. Nothing that affects any doctrine of the New Testament. I've also heard it said, maybe you have too from time to time, that that, uh, with the Bible you have a translation made from a translation, made from a translation, made from a translation. And so it's like the telephone game. What, What it starts out as and what it is at the end is completely different. And that's why we can't trust the New Testament. But that is not how biblical translation Works When scholars are giving us an updated translation of the Bible in modern language, or when it's translating into a whole new language that hasn't had the Bible before, they are always going back to the original language to do that translation work. So there is no telephone game thing happening there with the scriptures. And all of that is to say simply this, that you can have great confidence that the Bible in your hands or on your phone or on your tablet is, has been passed down with great care and integrity and faithfulness all by God's providence. And you can have assurance about that. Here's a second question that sometimes comes up, and that is, Who decided what was included and what was not included in the New Testament, right? Because again, there's this characterization that some elite person or some elite group at some certain period in time just passed down an, an edict about the New Testament. It's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is it was no one person. It was no one group. It rather was the affirmation of God's people over hundreds of years that gives us such great confidence in the 27 books contained in our New Testament. The four gospels were all written by those who uh, walked with Jesus or were close associates of those who walked with Jesus. And they wanted those gospels written before the apostles died so that the church would have record of what Jesus said and of what Jesus did from those who walked with him and heard him. And the apostles also then wrote letters of instruction that were distributed to the churches over time about explaining the teachings of Jesus and how we can walk in them and how it affects our lives and how it affects the life of the church. And these letters were meticulously copied and distributed as the churches spread across the Roman Empire. But very early consensus was developing among God's people and among the various churches around the documents that were authentic and apostolic. For instance, we have a list of 15 New Testament letters from Polycarp, kind of a cool name. He was an early father of the church. He was a direct disciple of the apostle John. We have a list of 15 from him from AD 108. 
okay? We have another list of 21 from Irenaeus in 185, a famous scholar of the church. We have a list from Origen, another scholar of the church from AD 250, and he lists all 27 letters that we currently have in our New Testament today. Origen lists that in AD 250. And that same list of 27 is affirmed by Athanasius in 367. Athanasius was bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. And he, in his Easter letter, he lists the same 27 letters that we have contained in our Bible today. And essentially three litmus tests were being applied to whether a document should be included or not included. One was, did it have apostolic authority or affirmation behind it? Now by apostle, apostle literally means a sent one. And so the apostles, when we use that term, sent one, it means someone who Jesus directly called and sent. Okay, and so one of the questions was, was this document authentically written by an apostle or did it have direct apostolic affirmation? Okay, because some documents floating around were attributed to an apostle, but they weren't really, they weren't authentic. And so the church had to weed that down to get to what was truly authentic. And that was one of the tests. Another test, number two, was does this document, does this letter have widespread acceptance and affirmation among God's people as a whole, okay? It wasn't any one person, any one group, any one council, because one of their primary tests was do the people of God as a whole accept this, and is it widely read among God's people in God's churches? The third thing is what we might call did it have a divine stamp upon it? When it's read, is it true? Is it accurate? Is it pure in the way that it describes the gospel? And does it have the testimony of the Holy Spirit behind it? And that may sound subjective in some ways, and yet, at least for me, it's one of the most powerful tests that we can apply because you can sense it too, just like the early believers were able to. Your heart comes alive when the text is preached and read and taught. It has the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. And they also applied that as a litmus test to it. Is it authentic from an apostle? Does it have widespread affirmation? And is the testimony of the Holy Spirit behind it when it is read? Okay, and that is how that list of 27 was narrowed down by God's people over time. Now, if, if you're the kind of, this is obviously a big topic, one we can't do complete justice to in about five minutes. And so if you're the kind of person that likes to dig deeper into such matters, there is a wonderful book by F.F. F. Bruce. He's a famous theologian of the church called The Canon of Scripture, where he describes the coming together not just of the New Testament canon, but also of the Old Testament canon. And so that could be a resource that you may want to pick up. F.F. F. Bruce, The Canon of Scripture. But we want to get to this last question. And the last question is, how exactly should I view the Bible? 
And how does the Bible call me to view it and accept about itself? What should I believe about it? And for me, the place to start when I'm asking that question is to say, how did Jesus view the scriptures? Because if there's any authority on the matter of what I should believe or not believe about the scriptures, it would be Jesus. So I want to know, what did, how did Jesus view what we call the Old Testament scriptures? Because of course the New Testament scriptures were written after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the scriptures that Jesus taught from were the Old Testament scriptures, right? The Jewish scriptures. So how did he view them? Well, I can tell you this, Jesus viewed the entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, all the books of the Old Testament, he viewed them as the word of God. In uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus is getting on the Pharisees here about something. In particular, what they had done is they had had a man-made regulation that said, it is okay to not take care of your elderly parents if you instead give the money you would have used to provide for them and you give it to charity, then it's okay. Jesus gets on them about this and he says in Mark chapter 7 verse 13, he said, by doing this, and so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition, okay? Because remember in the Ten Commandments it says, honor your father and mother. Jesus says, you have elevated the word of man over the word of God in this regulation. And he rebukes them for it. But what I want you to see is that in so doing, Jesus directly calls it the very word of God. Okay? In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, not a jot or tittle will disappear from the law until it is completely fulfilled. Every jot and tittle, every part, every word of the law, prophets, and writings is God's word. Jesus would not be in the camp that says, well, maybe this account is true and maybe this isn't. This part of the Bible is acceptable, this isn't. Jesus is not in that camp. He says, every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. He quotes from the Old Testament 40 different times in the Gospels. All through the Old Testament, you hear a recurring phrase from the prophets, which says, thus says the Lord, right? The prophets are saying, this is not our own imagination, but thus says the Lord, okay? Jesus, in calling it the word of God, is affirming this understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And we shouldn't be surprised then, this is exactly how we're encouraged to view it in the New Testament letters. This is how the apostles encourage us also to view the Old Testament in the same way that Jesus did. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. And he says, all scripture, and he's talking about the Jewish scripture, the Old Testament scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to help us realize what is wrong in our lives. Okay? So Paul says, the scriptures are inspired by God 
They teach us what is true and they convict us about what is wrong. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, says something very similar in his letter. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. He says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Circle that phrase, spoke, they spoke from God, the word of God, okay? So the Old Testament letters or, and books had a human author, but these human authors were so inspired or moved by the Holy Spirit that it can be said that they were also speaking from God. Okay, dual authorship is how the scripture views itself. But how do we come to the idea of viewing the New Testament documents in the same way that we are called to view the Old Testament documents? Like, how do we, how do we make that leap? How did that come to be among God's people? Well, Jesus said in John 14, 26, he said, when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything that I have told you. So there was an expectation that after Jesus' death and resurrection, when the Holy Spirit came, that one of his roles would be to help the apostles remember the words of Jesus and to illuminate them, that the Holy Spirit would be at work to preserve the teachings of Jesus and to further illuminate them. And this is exactly what we have preserved for us in the 27 letters of the New Testament. And very early, the gospels, the four gospels and Paul's letters were accepted on par with other scripture. And we see this when Peter, Peter is writing about Paul's letters in his second letter, chapter three. Listen to what Peter says about Paul's letters. He says, those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of scripture. Peter was equating the authority of the Old Testament documents with, with the Apostle Paul's writings and calling them both scripture. And so Christians have understood that the work of the Holy Spirit has preserved the teachings of Jesus and preserved the apostolic instruction for God's people down through the ages. And so we can say what the scripture says about the Old Testament is also true of the new that it is the very word of God to us. And I can treasure it and I can receive it, every jot and tittle of it, uh, just as the psalmist does in Psalm 19. And I wanna read you these few verses from Psalm 19. They are, have always been special in my own heart. I remember learning 
these verses when I was 12 or 13 years old. And they, even as a boy, they stuck somehow in my heart. And after 40 years of engaging with God's word, I have only a stronger and more firm conviction in what the psalmist is saying about God's word. So listen to these verses from Psalm 19. He writes, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord is true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. God's word is perfect, trustworthy, right, clear, eternal, true, desirable, and sweet to the soul like honey is sweet to the tongue. And when you receive it that way, when I receive it that way, it brings life, it brings wisdom, it brings joy, it brings insight, and it brings great reward. And so the question before us as we come to the end here is simply to ask, will I choose to receive God's word in this way as all of those things? So early in uh, Billy Graham's ministry, uh, he and his friend Chuck Templeton, Chuck Templeton was a fellow evangelist. He was a little bit older uh, than Dr. Graham. And they were scheduled to speak at a conference together in the mountains east of Los Angeles. And as they, as they talked between uh, meetings, uh, Chuck said, Billy, come on, you're, you're 50 years uh, out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way that you do. Your faith is too simple. Your language is, is, is out of date. And he, uh, he looked up to Chuck. And so what he said to him that day shook his confidence in the Bible. He also spoke that day, this is all in, in, uh, in Dr. Graham's autobiography. He said he spoke that day with, with Henrietta Mears. She was the conference director that they were at. And she, she was a woman who was confident in the truth of scripture. And she had a, a deep understanding of the word of God. And Billy writes, I, I ached as if I were on the rack because Miss Mears was stretching me one way and uh, Chuck Templeton was stretching me the other way. He says he, uh, he, he went to his room to study God's word alone, and he saw how Jesus taught that the Old Testament was completely true. 
he studied how Jesus saw the stories of Noah and Jonah that they actually happened as described in the Old Testament. He read all the verses he could find about the Bible's truth and authority. And he saw again that the Bible claims to be the perfectly true word of God. He left his room, he walked out into the forest. It was a warm August night and it was late. The moon was out. He came to a tree stump where he knelt down with his Bible in front of him and he began to pray. He said, oh God, there are many things in this book I do not yet understand. I can't answer every question that Chuck or others are raising. But what I do do is I choose to accept this as your word by faith. He writes, when I got up from my knees on that warm August night, my eyes stung with tears and I sensed the presence and the power of God as I had not before. And I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. And you know the testimony of their lives. Dr. Graham went on to preach the gospel around the world and changed hundreds of thousands of lives. Chuck Templeton, you have probably never heard of, right? And not to be uh, negative, but he became an agnostic and he died an old man, sad and confused, okay? Uh, it matters how we choose to view God's word. And I want you to know that each Sunday, as your pastors stand here before you, we come with the conviction that this is the very word of God. We don't come with our own opinions. We don't come, yeah. We don't come with our own imaginations. Week after week, with God's help, our desire is to bring you the pure and true word of God. Because Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And even this week, as you, as you open your Bible, <laughs> A physical Bible or a digital copy of the Bible, as you open your Bible to read it, that you would all in some way place your hand upon it and just say, God, by faith, I accept this as the word of God to me. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to me with power and with clarity and with relevance. And as you pray that way before you even open the Bible, God will answer that prayer and he will speak to you through it and you will have blessing and you will have insight and you will have wisdom for living. It will give you life as it testifies to who God is, his will for our life and it testifies about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words and that revelation will bring you life in powerful ways. And so will you today Decide and commit that it is the very word of God to you and it will change your life. <laughs> I'm gonna pray for us here in just a moment. And after we pray, oh, we're gonna share in communion together as a church family. And so those preparing communion can prepare that while we pray. And I just wanna say 
a quick word about communion, uh, that it is for all of God's people. Like, don't refuse the grace that comes through communion. The reason Christians take communion is because Jesus commanded it, right? He redefined the Passover dinner on the night before his death. And he says, as often as you take this cup and break this bread, do it now in remembrance of me. Because the bread represents my broken body and the cup represents my shed blood for you. And so that's why as Christians, we continue to obey the command of the Lord in that way. And God wants to give you renewed grace every time that you do it. You're receiving it into yourself again. You're saying, I believe it and I trust it. God has forgiven my sins through, through his son. And so never refuse communion when it is uh, offered to us. We should search our heart. We should ask God that we would take it reverently and purely, but don't receive the gift of communion uh, into your life. And so you're invited to come forward and receive it. You can kneel at the altar if you're new. Just to explain that, you can kneel at the altar or you can take the elements back to your seat. And there are also prepackaged elements in the back as well. But let me pray for us before we do that. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for such a wonderful and great church family. And we thank you so much for the word of God, which in your providence has been preserved for us, that we would know you, we would know your ways, and we would know the way to life through Christ our Savior. We thank you for that. And in faith, much like Dr. Graham did those many nights ago, we confess the same thing. We may not have all of the answers, but what we do confess is that we believe that the Bible is the very word of God to us, that it is trustworthy, it is true, it is perfect, it brings joy to the heart, it is desirable, it is sweet to the soul, and we need it in our lives. And we confess it as the word of God. We remember the temptation of the servant, serpent, even back in the garden, that did God really say? And so we combat that ancient temptation and say, yes, God did say. God has given us revelation that we can trust. And we accept it into our lives as the very word of God. Lord, thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your shed blood. We proclaim it. And we receive it again as we take communion today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. The altar is open. You come.